0: Hi there, I'm Mark Icero, and this is Article Club, where we read, annotate, and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. It's October, everybody, and I'm very excited to share with you that this month we are focusing on an outstanding article that came out recently in the New York Times Magazine. It is called The Instagram Account That Shattered a California High School, and it's by Dashka Slater, the best selling author of The 57 Bus. The article is about a racist Instagram account that was created in 2017 by a high school boy in the Bay Area town of Albany, California. It's about the harm he caused, and it's also about how the adults at the school and in the community didn't really know how to respond to hold him accountable. It's such an interesting article, and I was so appreciative when Ms. Slater said yes to participating in Article Club. Here's the conversation that Article Clubber Melinda and I had with Ms. Slater a few weeks ago. I hope you enjoy it. I hope it makes you think, and I hope it encourages you to join our discussion on October 29th. All right, let's listen. Dashka Slater, thank you so much for being on Article Club.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me.
0: Melinda and I are here with tons of questions. We can't wait to talk to you about your outstanding piece about this scandal, Instagram scandal, at a local Bay Area high school in Albany and just wanted to ask you first you've written the 57 bus so we sort of know about the kinds of topics and why and what you explore but wanted to sort of ask how did you find out about this incident and what sort of has gotten you to continue to explore it over time.
1: I found out about this story, weirdly enough, while I was signing advanced copies of the 57 bus, I was at, you know, Northern California bookseller event in March or end of March, beginning of April of that year, 2017. And somebody in the signing line said, did you hear what happened in Albany? And at that point I had not heard. And yet as this person who was a parent in the district told me about it, my antenna instantly went up. I had no intention of having teenagers and hate be my beat. You know, that was, I had just finished one book. It nearly, you know, destroyed me emotionally. And so why I decided to jump back in and do another one is a little unclear. But those issues of teenage misbehavior and This kind of way that young people can cause these catastrophic harms, both to individuals and to their community, often without having any sense of what effect or impact their actions are going to have. That is really fascinating to me.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting, Dashka. When I was reading your piece, kind of to like zoom out a little bit to the like creation moment of this Instagram account, something that I thought was harrowing is when Charles, when, when you interview Charles, who is for folks who are, haven't read the article yet, is the boy who created the Instagram account at this high school. And he was talking about his experience on the internet. And he was using words like, I just, everyone found it funny that humor was a big motivator for him. And he said something, he said to quote, I guess the humor just got darker and darker as I explored more of the internet. And I'm wondering, you know, you researched this piece for five years you, for, for, and the, the subsequent book that you also wrote. What have you learned about like the, the internet diet? Of young boys, young high school boys. For me, I, I when I read it, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like this is a one way ticket to like Andrew Tate or Jordan Peterson. But I wanted to know, like, where are they on the internet? What are they looking at? Who are they following? Where are they most of the time? That kind of thing.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting to me because it is like a very gendered cultural difference. That people who identify as male are in this world where transgressive humor is very much at a premium, and so it starts both in internet gaming rooms and spaces. You know, aren't playing video games, talking to other players, there's sort of instantly this kind of roasting culture is happening, and and a lot of use of the N word various homophobic slurs, all of that is happening. So they're pretty quickly, I think it's easy to become acculturated and to see those things as not harmful or no big deal. And then this in this quest, I think both to be funny, which is a huge premium in boy culture, and also to kind of figure out how to be male in the world, which is a a kind of contested definition right now, right? So boys are trying to figure out like, what does it mean to be a boy? And there's a lot of dispute over what that means. But even in the most liberal pro-feminist places, like in the Bay Area, the cultural messages about being male, I think override any other cultural message in the sense that they say you should not cry, you should not have big emotions if you are too in love with a girl, you're a simp. And so there's lots of things that are kind of telling them to shut down and to just be funny and you know, try and get other male approval, which has always been kind of the definition of maleness, right, is that other men think you're manly. It's not really about what women think at all, right? So there's all these humorous places where those messages are coming through. And I think you're right. It is in many ways a pipeline to Andrew Tate.
2: As a follow-up to that, I'm wondering, you know, It's interesting how you're talking about like, that's the dominant, it's the overriding thing, like it absorbs the pro-feminist, like anti-misogyny, you know, liberal beat is the idea of like, they're defining their maleness. I'm wondering, you know, I, the, this happened in 2017, the account was created, I guess, like early 2017 or late 2016. And I think about like, that's the that's like the rise of like Andrew Tate, Jordan Peterson's book comes out a year after that. Obviously, 2016 is a harrowing year for all of us. And we know why. I'm wondering, do did the, did the parents like have any knowledge? Did they talk about knowing about those things that their boys are looking at online or anything like that? Particularly because like this is all about accountability and the role of parents.
1: I think parents, particularly in 2017, but to this day, have no idea what the online lives of their kids are. I certainly didn't. I have a son who's just a little bit older than the kids in this book. And I always refer to him as my, you know, live-in media slang and internet consultant. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I always check stuff with him. And I remember when he was a teenager, him showing me a meme that I found super offensive. And I got really pissed off about it. It was not like a great parenting moment in terms of, I wasn't very articulate about why it made me mad. I was just mad. And I asked him about it recently if he remembered that interaction. And he was like, oh yeah. And I asked him what he remembered. And he said, I was just really confused. Because that meme was like the biggest meme of the year. It was absolutely everywhere. It was huge. And your reaction like had no relationship to the way anybody else was talking about it. And so that to me, like at the time, that was just like a tiny little window glimpse that I got into what the online culture was. And I wasn't writing a book about it, so I didn't really pursue it. I had no context. But now that I have this context... I wish that more parents did, that more Mm -hmm. parents knew how, you know, the internet is its own culture and always and always will be. But part of that culture is very, very toxic.
0: Yeah. Throughout your piece, I was waiting for the parents to sort of be in the piece and they just weren't really there. And then obviously you start with the vice principal, and then we can talk a whole lot about the response or lack thereof from administrators at the school, it's very easy to like step on to administrators and say that they should, you know, have done more, they should have done something differently, which is a really interesting meta piece as well. I feel that's going on in your piece about like what really should have been done or could have been done here to strike some accountability. But yeah, I guess I wanted to ask you about About what you feel the role of adults could be, especially maybe when they are scared or they're nervous or they don't really know what to do.
1: One of the hardest things for anybody, any human, is to take a breath and say, I don't know. And I think that was really lacking in Albany. In, and most places in a time of crisis, because there's, everybody's having emotions and they want immediate action. And as a result, there was a lot of action that wasn't very well informed with all the dynamics that it took me five years to reconstruct. So, you know, I always say like the first thing is don't rush because, you know, lo- there's a lot that you don't know. And, and the more you talk, the less you're listening. In general. I think the other piece for adults is to not become the story, you know, that we often forget in our relationships with young people that we are not the story. And our job is to be teachers, coaches, mentors. Uh, We are supposed to assist. And as the people who have more life experience, uh, more developed prefrontal cortex and so on. And in times when emotions are triggered, uh, a lot of us Forget that, and so make make the story about us. And so I think that happened to the parents in Albany for sure. That uh, the parents of the boys who were involved wanted to prove that they were not racist, that their families were not racist, that they hadn't taught this, you know, to their sons. And of course, they were protective of their children. The parents of the girls who were targeted were, of course, extremely protective of their children and outraged that these girls who had done nothing except for exist had been targeted by people they trusted who were their friends. And so, you know, there were a lot of adults who were having a lot of emotions. And then meanwhile, the teachers and administrators at the school are also having big emotional reactions. They've known many of these kids their whole lives and they can't believe it's happening in their community. And particularly for those who are white, they're feeling defensive about the fact that this did happen because a lot of people immediately said it's the school's fault. The school should have taught these kids not to be racist. They need to be educated and so on. And so everybody, every adult quickly got into the mode of trying to protect their own reputations at the same time that they were trying to do everything else.
2: Yeah. I found that like very interesting how it kind of jumped around as like a hot potato issue of like, well, you need to figure out the solution or I I did my part. And I'm wondering, you know, like as you were researching this and as the events unfolded and they continue to unfold, because as you say in your piece, like this was absurd at SCOTUS, which got denied this summer. But did you ever see like the definition of accountability like changing or evolving like in the community? Did some groups like think that they were more accountable or... Was there like a moment in time where administration stepped in and they were like, okay, well, we are accountable for this. Like, how do you feel like the different groups involved defined accountability as this as this unfolded?
1: Unfortunately, I think there is a very little discussion of what accountability actually means in any context. And so people tend to say, you know, when I say I wrote a book called Accountable about a racist social media account, they say, well, were the creators actually Held accountable, and by which they mean were they punished? You know that's how we define accountable: is that you have you know experienced some amount of pain that is supposed to balance out the pain that you caused. And deeper questions about where responsibility begins and ends, how do you really deeply take in the harm that you've caused, and then and also reflect on what made you be a person who would cause that kind of harm? That doesn't happen. And in the community, I kept on waiting as, as you did for that moment of introspection. And I kept on thinking at all these public hearings that there might be a moment where somebody said, you know, we're in this very affluent, achievement-oriented community. We have made our schools the most special place in the world. And maybe it's time for us to think about ways in which we have not taken good care of all the people in our community and we have not affirmed all the identities in our community. And we have also not looked beyond our borders at the world and the ways in which people might be experiencing it differently, depending on their histories and their identities. And that did not happen. I think because it was, you know, a very, very deeply affecting and shocking thing that made. As I said, people feel defensive. And also Trump had just been elected uh, just three months before. And I think there was also just this feeling of Albany was supposed to be a safe place where far right things didn't happen. And we want to quickly eject the badness out of our community so we can go back to feeling like we're a safe place.
0: Yeah, there's a quote by, I guess, the new principal McNally toward the end of the piece where Mm -hmm. he says, we live in a society that is so punishment focused, that's so focused on turning people in right and wrong and then punishing wrongness, that it's incredibly difficult to get people out of that mindset. And it actually reminded me even of like something like the Scarlet Letter, like this idea of a community just trying to cast out some somebody or something that that's not okay. And and i was a little bit surprised though that the fellow students actually were really really with the protest and that just what seemed like a very ugly day at the school but were you surprised or do you think it was also because of the abdication of the other of the adults in the space
1: you know kids have a really strong sense of justice and it's like one of the most powerful motivating forces for them is this sense of right and wrong and so they were trying to sort that out. Something wrong had happened, and they wanted to show that they were against the wrong thing. And that seems to me like a very healthy and Cool and good response. Like they wanted to say, we don't believe in racism and this should not have happened to these young women in our community and one guy. So where things I think fell apart was that there was no guidance to say, well, what does that mean? Like how are you know, that we don't just, you know, expel people for life or brand them for life because of a screw up, even one that is a really bad and harmful one. I remember when I uh, wrote The 57 Bus, one of the things that I found particularly inspiring was that the boy who had set Sasha, the gender nonconforming teen who was set on fire on the bus, the principal of the school where the boy who set the fire attended made this statement about we condemn this act and we support Sasha, the person who was harmed. But let's not forget that this boy comes from our community as well. And I thought that's what I want educators to do in this kind of situation is to to send a message to the community that when bad things happen and they're caused by someone in your community, particularly a young person, that what a healthy community does is they try and absorb that harm, rectify it, and then help the young person who committed it be a person who doesn't do it in the future. Because, you know, there is no, when we throw people away, we're not actually throwing them at, off the planet. They're just going to go someplace else and be the same person. So if you expel them from your school, cool
2: for you. But uh, what happens at the next school? Right. I, I, when I was reading the piece, I kept thinking like, there is such a, like you were saying, Mark, and like Josh, where you also said earlier, there's such a focus on punitive actions. And what I was wondering when you were researching this, was there ever any discussions of like, okay, what happens in the aftermath? Like, how do we make this school safer? Particularly, A is the kind of like spotlighted girl in the article. She's one of a few women who were targeted by this Instagram account. And, you know, her pain comes so so viscerally through the article and in the book. And I'm just wondering, like, was there a balance achieved? Like, was there balance talked about at all and with within the administration, within, like, the school or the parents about we're trying to figure out what a punishment is for these boys, but at the same time, like, we should also focus on how to create a safer environment so this doesn't happen again. Did those discussions happen at all when you were researching? I think that there was a lot of attempts and without a roadmap. So, and there was
1: nobody... That I wrote about or interviewed or researched, who was like, I don't care, whatever. You know, like everybody was trying to do the right thing. And there was a lot of concern about the girls and how they were faring and how they would continue to fare, which was, you know, not well. And so, you know, they did have counselors on staff at the school who were pulling them out of class and they were trying to find different ways to support them. There were people in the community who were doing that as well. But There wasn't a roadmap for it. And there was so much focus on the punitive outcome as being the solution and Mm. was held out to the girls. I think as like, you will feel better when you get this level of punishment, which is often what we say to survivors of crime and harm is like, we promise them that their their trauma will go away if the person who hurt them is punished severely enough and the uh, studies have found no link at all between the well-being of the survivor and the duration of incarceration or the severity of punishment. There's just, they are not connected. And so we actually cause more harm when we offer that as a solution to people. The question then of how do you prevent it is one that I know that McNally, the principal that you mentioned mentioned. And others are thinking about now, which is how do we create a school culture where this kind of thing is less likely to happen because we're developing empathy among our students. We're making sure that they are connected and know each other and are more likely to not want to hurt each other and to be aware that our actions are going to hurt each other. And we are more likely to say something if somebody is crossing the line and we're doing lots of things to kind of affirm and uplift the different cultures in our community so that people aren't only learning the story of anti-Black racism, for example, but are also learning about Black excellence and Black achievement and Black culture in positive ways, which I think is really an important antidote to this stuff is to, you know, learn about the joys of the culture, as well as the long history of racism and harm.
0: I think it's just so, so important about how to build, you know, that school culture. And it's not easy, but it has to really be tended to. Even in the piece where a, you know, the young woman, she goes to the boy and says, hey, stop this. And yet, it's not stopped. And so sometimes I just, I mean, Melinda and I were talking before this about just how enraged we both were because she does everything that, you know, is a very humane response and yet it's just not enough. And Melinda and I were talking about like, when we do the right thing, when a young woman does the right thing, like it should stop. But in this case, it didn't.
1: Yeah. And other people spoke up too. And I I had a lot of conversations with Charles where I was like, what could have stopped this? Because as you say, Andrea did the right thing. Lots of her friends spoke up and even somebody in the group who was low status um, among the boys spoke up and none of that interrupted it. And Charles was like, it would have been really hard because everybody in our group thought it was funny. And so it was like this feedback loop about people that mattered one of the boys said to me that like the girls weren't even like, they weren't main characters in the drama and the way he was thinking about it at the time, you know, the main characters were him and his friends. And so part of what needed to happen was inside the friend group. And it was, you know, very much a self-reinforcing circle. So it's tough. It's tough because every time I talk to Men and boys about how do you speak up and interrupt something and you don't have to say very much. They look at me like I'm suggesting that they grow another head. You know, it's, a, <laughs> it's experientially a really hard thing for men in a group to say, that's not cool. And so I think it's, you know, it has to be kind of a multifactorial thing where everybody is trying to do their little piece to interrupt it, to make it just less likely that it's gonna happen. Knowing that there's a good chance, unfortunately, that it is gonna happen because it's so hard to interrupt and because the cultural messages are coming from outside. And so then you are back at this question of when it does happen, what do you do?
2: I mean, I, I won't put words in Mark's mouth, but I feel like I could sit here and talk to you for 14 more hours. But of course, you have a busy schedule. We are talking about this in Article Club in October. It has so many different layers. I feel like it is a microcosm of all of the cultural issues we are facing today. And I wanted to ask you, like, are there any themes that you would suggest that we talk about, things that you would like our readers to pick up on, things that you know, of course, there's there's also a book that you wrote about this, but anything that you wanted to expand upon in the article that didn't make into it, any highlights you would like to give us?
1: Well, one thing that I thought about a lot as I was writing the book, and I hope it comes through in the article as well, is the concept of shame. It's a big part mm-hmm. of the book. And so I would love to hear what readers think about the theme of shame throughout, both the shame that is caused by bullying and and racism and The shame that was used against the followers of the account as a way people thought of making them see the harm that they had done. And so I'm really interested by this question of the difference between shame and guilt and whether shame has any role
2: at all in changing behavior. I love that. That is a wonderful place to end. I, again, I've read Accountable. It is Accountable, the true story of a racist social media account and the teenagers whose lives it changed. It is out now. 10 out of 10 for me. I read it in a day. I took it on vacation. Not your traditional beach read, but I highly recommend, particularly if you have children or young people in your life in any way. Well, thank you so much. And I'm so happy to be part of this discussion. Thank you. Thank you
0: so much. Thank you.
2: Take care. Bye-bye.
0: I want to thank Ms. Slater one more time for sharing your peace and your wisdom with all of us at Article Club. I continue to be struck not only by the thoroughness of your reporting, but also by the compassion and nuance that you bring to your work. You are thoughtful and kind, and you remind us to be thoughtful and kind as we work with young people to learn and grow from the mistakes they make and the harm they cause. To all of you listening, thank you for listening, and if this conversation moved you, I want to invite you to our discussion on October 29th at 2 p.m. Pacific Time. It'd be great to see you there. All you need to do is email me at mark at articleclub.org to say that you're interested or sign up at highlighter.cc slash discussion. Thank you again, and hope you have a good weekend coming up.